As Cam said, the reading today will be Micah 6 and 7. Um, it will be interspersed uh, within the sermon. However, I'll read the uh, first bit, Micah 6, 1 to 8, and now. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, and Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him? with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, as we come to the last two wonderful chapters of Micah, um, please transform us and give us humble hearts as we listen to what you're saying to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Why are we here? Not at church, in life. Why are we here? Why are you here on the planet Earth? Why am I here? It's a miracle that any of us exist. Uh, the chances of conce at conception that you specifically came into being are one in 100 million. That means that there were 99,999,999 other people that could have existed instead of you. And yet, God the Creator willed you into existence. You. Why? For what purpose? It's now been 10 years since the band The Verve released their great song, Bittersweet Symphony, a song which raises the question about the apparent, apparent meaninglessness of life. It's a bittersweet symphony, this life. You try and make end, ends meet, you're a slave to money, and then you die. Written by a son who watched his father work nine to five his entire life and apparently achieved nothing. I say apparently because we know he at least had a son to show for it. And probably a life that impacted other people, hopefully in a good way, but for what purpose? Why are we here? 
and as a consequence, how should we live? That question is a question which everyone asks at some point. We wonder about it from time to time, don't we? In the checkout, at the supermarket, why am I doing this? Um, but usually it hits us with force when something major interrupts our lives. A birth, a death, or a brush with death. And it makes us ask the question, why am I here? You don't have to believe in God to ask this question, although it's very hard to work out the answer if you think you're an accident and life is essentially meaningless. And often it's too hard to wrestle with this, so we settle for a lesser but still important question of what's the best way to live, what's the ethical way to live. Socrates, the Greek philosopher, famously said, an unexamined life is not worth living. So the question of our purpose is a secular question, which everyone asks, but it's also a religious question. All the religions of the world address this question and all assume that in the end, in the final analysis, there will be some sort of accounting one way or another. Which makes this question, of course, not just a religious question, but also now a personal question for each one of us. If the Lord is real, what does the Lord require of me? Now, I wonder what you think is the answer to that. What's your philosophy of life? If you had to give an answer, not a pat answer, you know, something you're taught in church, but it, the answer that you truly live by, what would it be? What does the Lord require of you? What would you say? Not much? Or a lot? Or you know what? The truth is we need him to tell us, which makes this question not just a personal question, but now a biblical question. We need him to reveal to us what he wants. In the final chapters of Micah, he does it. In chapters one and two, God was against his people for failing to live how he said. In chapter three, there were real life consequences for the people of Jerusalem, coming judgment. But then in chapters four and five, we heard of God's plan, fulfilled in Jesus, of him going to remake the temple, lifting it up, and bringing the nations to know him, to learn of his ways through the news about Jesus going out that the nations may walk in the paths of the Lord. Well, guess what? We are those nations. We have learned from him. The news has gone out. We have heard that we may learn of his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Micah chapter six, verse eight. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Here is the answer to the personal question, what does the Lord require of us? Explicitly answered there in verse eight. Okay, we're going to keep it simple today. What I'm gonna do is go through verse eight, phrase by phrase, and using parts of Micah six and seven to reflect on what they mean. We begin with that first phrase, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and we'll um, we won't hear again from the passage, but the one that Lisa read out at the start. That statement, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good, that comes even before the question. That's important. In Micah chapter six, verse one, 
The Lord begins and he brings a formal accusation against his people in the court of creation. Listen, mountains and hills. The mountains and the hills are the court as if what the people have done is an offense against creation itself. It's a formal charge, but it's personal. The Lord says to his people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Will you answer me? And the assumption is because I've been good to you. I've shown you what is good. The Lord says, remember how you were slaves in Egypt, oppressed and crying out? And and do you remember how I heard your cries and I had compassion upon you? And do you remember how I stepped in and I did what no God has ever done before for a people, how I literally redeemed you? I have shown you what is good. I have had compassion upon you. In the Bible, compassion, by the way, is never just a feeling of pity towards someone in need. It is always an emotion that drives to action. It is, it's always got its sleeves rolled up and steps in to change a situation. I have had compassion upon you. I've shown you what is good. And then the Lord says, remember how I gave you leaders, Moses and Aaron and, and Miriam. I have shown you what is good. I gave you people to lead you, to shepherd you. And then remembering, remember, do you remember how when you're wandering in the desert, remember how there was that Moabite king, your enemy, Balak, and he saw you, the multitude, and he was threatened by you. And do you remember how he sent across to Persia, to Iraq, to hire a powerful seer named Balaam, and promised him lots of money if he would come over and curse you because he needed a supernatural solution to your existence. And do you remember how I stopped Balaam? I stopped him from cursing you and had him only blessing you instead. I have shown you what is good. I changed the course of international events so that you would be blessed and not cursed. And the Lord says, do you remember how I provided for you in those 40 years of wanderings, even though you kicked against me again and again? Patience and forbearance and faithfulness I showed you. Goodness, I've shown you all of these things. Micah, he has shown you literally Adam, what is good. Adam, Adam, the word for the first person in the Bible. Bible, Genesis chapter two. That word, Adam, speaks of our unique status but also our fragility, Uh, someone who is made in the very image in the likeness of God, but who is mortal, made of the dust, and will die. That is you and me, incredible status, and yet fragile, Glorious, endowed with responsibility to rule the world under God and yet accountable because of sin, mortal. God has shown us, we Adams, what is good. He's shown us, hasn't he? Compassion, provision, commitment to bring blessing, incredible forbearance. So what does the Lord require of us? That's the question. I think we'll go six and seven again, thanks. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Okay, Micah himself asks, given the Lord's proven and exceeding goodness, with what shall I bring before the Lord when I come to worship? Now, it's a question, it's a good question, because I don't think we naturally ask this at all. And my guess is that many of us just don't think like this. And yet, in the Old Testament, of course, it was unthinkable that you would come to worship God empty-handed. Even when you'd bought your sin offerings, there were a range of thanksgiving offerings and fellowship offerings, things which you'd have, which you would give to the Lord out of gratitude to God, to please God. I suspect that we, this is a critique, I'm including myself, we come too emptily. Um, we know Jesus, of course, has covered the sin offering and then we don't think we need to bring everything else because he's done that part. That is not the perspective either of the New Testament. The New Testament says we bring our bodies in service to the Lord and in service to the Lord's people. We bring our gifts. We bring our minds and our hearts to worship. We bring our thanksgiving and our praise as offerings to the Lord. Micah asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? And then he, he lists some options. Shall I bring more animals? Psalm 50 verse nine. The Lord says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens because every animal of the forest already is mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. What about refined crops, our precious you know, produce, our bottles of olive oil that you might have made from your crop? Shall, um, will the Lord be pleased with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? No. no. <laughs> what about something more precious? Well, shall I offer what is most precious to me, the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He's not talking about child sacrifice here, right? Um, no child of Adam can atone for our sin, only a sinless son, the sinless son of God, who doesn't carry the stain of sin, can atone for sins. So Micah, in posing this question, I don't think he's talking about child sacrifice, although, it has to be said in his lifetime, horrendously, Ahab, the king, did exactly this when he turned from the Lord and started worshipping Syrian gods, sacrificed his own son, something abhorrent to the Lord. More likely, Micah, in asking this question about the offering of his firstborn, he was thinking, I'm guessing, probably more about offering his firstborn to God for ministry, a lifetime of ministry service. Hannah did this, you remember, with her son Samuel, you'll remember? 1 Samuel 1 and 2, she was childless, poured out her heart in grief to God, the Lord gave her her son. After he was weaned, she took him and presented him to Eli the priest, and he served the Lord all of his life. Micah asked the question, is that what I should bring when I come to worship the Lord? Offering my son or daughter in service to him? Now, just because it's raised, just as an aside, it's not a stupid idea. Um, you may not know, the Western world is heading for something of a pastor drought at the moment. Um, in Adelaide, Luther Sem has faculty but no students. Okay. 
Uh, there's several reasons, I think, for this. One of them is that secularism is now the air that Christians breathe. Um, what that means is we are not thinking about the glories of Christ and we're not thinking about giving our lives as a sacrifice to him. And I think probably what that means is that in conversations between parents and children, we, th we have a conversation about how can you choose a career that will make them flourish, but not how can they spend their life in service of the Lord. Just a comment. Um, I think we'll reap the benefits of what we've done, unless we change. Given that the Lord has shown us what is good, what does the Lord require of us? Sacrifices and offerings, he owns the animals. He doesn't need our produce. We couldn't even offer our children to atone for our sins. What does the Lord then require of us? Three things, Micah says. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God. Firstly, to act justly. Thanks, Lisa. Listen. The Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing, because what you save, I will give to the sword. You will plant, but not harvest. You will press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Thank you. God required his people to act justly and they were not. They had dishonest scales designed to rip people off. The wealthy not only defrauded the poor, but then there was violence, and then there was lies to cover up the violence. And so, in his justice, God is fair. He said, well, guess what? Now you will eat, but you won't be satisfied. You'll store up, but you will not save. You'll plant, but not harvest. God requires that we act justly. First and foremost, of course, that means treating people fairly, not ripping them off. It means speaking the truth and not lies. It means treating people with the same dignity regardless of how wealthy or poor they may be. And then of course if we ourselves are sinned against, not paying back in kind, because revenge so quickly escalates, we very rarely can judge a situation rightly and, and um, you know, act justly in retribution. Uh, there are courts for that, that's why we have those systems. Because we get it wrong, you know, you slap me so I thump you harder. It's almost impossible to be just when we play the judge and the punisher. Act justly. 
That's the first thing the Lord requires of us. The second is to love mercy. Chapter seven. What misery is mine. I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of confusion. Do not trust a neighbour. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonours his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Saviour. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. The day for building your walls will come, the day for extending your boundaries. In that day people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants. <coughs> as the result of their deeds. Okay. Micah, in chapter seven, is in misery. We infer the judgment that God has promised has fallen. Lawlessness and terror and confusion reign. Trust between people has entirely broken down, even with those closest to you. Family, the woman that you love. But where the Lord is, there is hope. And Micah says, as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. He waits for God, his saviour. He owns his own sin. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until the Lord pleads my case and upholds my cause. In other words, until mercy is extended. Micah looks forward to the day when people from the nations, from Assyria, from Egypt, won't be gathered against Jerusalem, but they will come to the Lord. And yes, even though they will be justly punished for their sins, that won't be the end. The nations will come to the Lord, mercy will be extended from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. 
This passage is more about the Lord's mercy than about um, ours, what we are to do. This is a mercy which looks beyond justice to what is best for people in the end after they've been punished, right? This is a long-term view, mercy. On Monday, um, in our Bible study group with the older guys, we were discussing this and we asked the question, what, what are examples of people um, you know who have been merciful? And Gary mentioned his former boss, the chairman of Rex Airlines, and I, I tell you this story with Gary's permission. A very surprising example, this man was a hard businessman, he didn't praise people, he was often critical, he drove very hard enterprise um, bargains. He expected people to, to tow the company line. So that most of the staff actually thought him uncaring and harsh. In actual fact, the chairman's point of view was that it's more important that his staff have a job than get a big pay rise. We could debate that. Gary was on the senior management of Rex and he said in that capacity he knew of numerous examples where a staff member had developed cancer and they'd used up all their leave on treatment and then the request was made to the senior management for leave without pay. The chairman refused it. Instead, he insisted that Rex continue to pay them until they recovered, and then he gave them X amount of dollars towards their medical expenses. That is a man who loves mercy. Where did such mercy come from? Uh, Gary's comment, interesting that this week in the news there was an article about Rex Airlines. They've turned around and they're now making a profit. The headline on the paper read, by the grace of God, and hard work. Now that was a quote from the chairman. How can you explain the turnaround? By the grace of God and hard work. I don't know him personally. My guess is that this man knew the mercy of God to him and he resolved in his professional capacity to show mercy as he could. Mercy. Sometimes we pit justice against mercy, doesn't we, don't we, as, as values. You love mercy, I'm a person of justice. Of course, both are important, aren't they? But in dealing with people, Micah says, okay, act justly, but love mercy. Love it. Jesus said, love your enemies. Love them and pray for those who persecute you. Mercy. James, in his epistle, says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Love mercy. Well, what about you? Are you a person who loves mercy? If you asked your family members and those closest to you who knew you most, would they say that, yes, you are a person Mum, dad, insert your name. They love mercy. Love it, says the Lord. Love mercy. Despite all that had happened, Michael still knew God was merciful and he looked to God for mercy. And that's why he could speak of the Lord showing mercy to the nations who are currently against Jerusalem because he knew that 
he too, like them, needed from the Lord mercy. He has shown you, Adam, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Act justly, love mercy, and finally walk humbly with your God. Last reading. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture land. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to your ancestors in days long ago. Walk humbly with your God. Now, putting together what we've just read, for Micah, this meant something for him and something when he was thinking about others. For him, it meant he looked to God, not to men, to lead God's people and save them from the current mess. In other words, he was aware that he needed mercy because of his sin, but everyone else in Jerusalem needed the Lord's mercy because of their sin. In other words, he was very aware of the sin of himself and the people. And that meant that he didn't put his hope in sinful people. Jerusalem's leaders were corrupt. Hope doesn't lie in men. Hope lies in God. Uh, this is instructive. It's very easy, I think, for us to get it disenchanted with our leaders and then do no more than complain. Micah, walking humbly with his God, means he calls upon God to shepherd and lead his people. He moves beyond complaint to prayer and to active dependence. Okay? That's what walking humbly with God looks like, partly. Also, walking humbly with God meant Micah looking to God for justice and mercy for the people of the world. Uh, we get concerned about what's happening. We get outraged with what's happening around the world. We can't believe that certain things are happening. How could leaders be so stupid? How could those people do such things to others? Um, fair enough. Micah looked forward to the day when the nations who were against his people would see God fighting for them once again, and then he looked forward to the day when he, he knew the nations would kind of put their hands over their mouths in shame because they themselves had been humbled and they realized what they'd done. And then he looked forward to the day, not just for retribution, but, but when they would turn to the Lord. 
and God uh, would bring them to him. So he looked to the Lord to deal with the mess. Walking humbly also meant having an awareness of his own sin and then being blown away by God's consistent mercy and compassion. So you get these wonderful exclamations at the end, don't you? Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Who is a God like you? You know, we can, I think, think that um, because this is familiar to us, that other pagan gods or other gods that people worship now are like this. Pardon sin. They are not. They are not. Can you name me one other God in your knowledge of world religions, past or present, who pardons sin? Can anyone here do it? I'm waiting. They just, they just don't do it. Pardoning sin, forgiving transgression, it is something unique to the Lord. You do not stay angry forever. You delight to show mercy. This is the Lord. And because God is like that, Micah can say, who is like you? You will have, again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. You will hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea, unretrievable. That is what the Lord does. Now I hope you're beginning to see in Micah 6 and 7 the why of what the Lord requires of us. It goes like this, he has already shown you, O mortal, what is good. So when he says, what the Lord requires of us is to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. These are the things that God himself has shown already by doing them himself towards us. It is what the Lord himself is like. The Lord is the one who acts justly. The Lord is the one who loves mercy. The Lord is the one, yes, who even walks humbly. Now, perhaps this wasn't properly understood until Jesus himself came, who, being in the very nature God, made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And guess what? That wasn't inconsistent with the character of God. This is what God is like. He reveals God completely in doing that, in his humiliation. How does Jesus put it? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, if you or I wanted a moment where we saw all these things coming together, justice, mercy, humility, it's the cross, isn't it? That, that's what Jesus himself says. It's where God was showing his justice. He doesn't cast a blind eye to the terrible things people do and have done. He punishes it once and for all. He shows his incredible justice, a huge cost to himself. But so important is justice that he does it. He punishes sin. And he does it to show his mercy. 
Mercy, you remember, is not just a feeling, it's, it's got its sleeves rolled up. It's compassion in action. It's not treating people as their sins deserve, not punishing those who deserve punishment. That's what mercy is. Well, only through the death of God's innocent son could he be just and at the same time secure our pardon and hurl our sins into the depths of the sea, securing for us lasting mercy. And then thirdly, the humiliation. He is just, he loves mercy, and at the cross, that, that happens because of the humiliation of his precious son, the mighty son of God. On the cross, it's true, isn't it? He has shown you, Adam, what is good. He has shown us very clearly what is good, and it's what he is like. So what does the Lord require of us? It's obvious, isn't it? Well, to be like him, that's the answer. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, like Christ himself. Why do you exist? What is God's purpose for your life? Ultimately, it is to be like Christ himself. That is why God made you. He wants you not just to save you from your sin, but to transform you to walk in the image of his son, the perfect human. That's why God sent Jesus to the cross. Titus says, to redeem for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Father, thank you, you give us immense clarity about what's the purpose for our existence. And thank you that you in the cross have shown us what is good. There you acted justly, there you loved mercy, and there Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, walked humbly with the Lord, you, his heavenly Father. Our great God, help us to do the same to be transformed in Christ's likeness, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, our God. Amen.